Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. The story is told of a circus strongman who uh, had particularly strong, powerful hands. And one of the things he would do in the show is to take an orange before the crowd and squeeze it with his bare hands until every last drop of juice had come out. And then he would dare anyone in the audience who thought they were stronger to come and find one more drop because of how strong he was. He'd have other Big strong men come up and try to squeeze more out, but to no avail. No one could ever find more juice. But on one occasion, a rather skinny man came up. He said he'd like to give it a shot. The old strong man kind of chuckled at him, and he said, sure, why not? So he took that orange in one hand, and with all his strength that he could muster up, he squeezed it. To the shock of the strong man and to the crowd, there was one more drop of juice that had dripped out. They couldn't believe it. The strong man was beside himself, and he said, how in the world were you able to squeeze out another drop of orange juice? Where, where, where did your power come from? Where did your strength come from? To which the man replied, it's easy. I'm the treasurer for the church down the street, and I know how to squeeze stuff out of folks all the time. <laughs> we're not going there. Well, we are kind of going there. One more sermon on stewardship this morning and on giving out of Mark chapter 12. Verse 38, if you have your Bible, follow along. Jesus is in Jerusalem by now. He's been to the temple, and now he's teaching his disciples. Who's giving her offering. I think my battery just died. If you would just turn this on, Brandon, we're good. I'll stay put, I promise. Verse 38. And in his teaching, Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in log robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. And they have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty and has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to the text this morning and we come to your word. I pray, Father, that uh, knowing that you are the God who is above all, you are the giver of all, the sustainer of all of life, it is my prayer that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to grasp what the scriptures are teaching to us this morning. For there is life-changing truth here in this text for us. Truth that will never change. So, Father, as you call on us to obedience and walk in faith, Lord, I also would pray that that empowering comes 
so that we as your people respond accordingly by faith. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to set the scene for you this morning, the scene for courageous giving. The reality of giving is very similar to that of being a parent. Uh, I didn't realize this until our first Father's Day, Mother's Day, but it makes perfect sense and relates to how we relate to God in our giving. You might relate to Mother's Day or Father's Day or birthday, perhaps or even Christmas, and mom and dad, we're employed, we earn our wages, and then it comes time to give a gift. And when those days come up, mom or dad is saying, here, take some money, go get something for Christmas for me. You get the picture, right? Yeah. This year for Mother's Day, I was able to say, you three girls, you older ones, you have money, go get something for your mother. It was a joy because they got to pick it out. It was their own sacrifice, right? That's kind of how it is, though, when we give back to God. We are simply giving back from what he has given to us. For example, King David in the Old Testament is getting ready. He wanted desperately to build the temple, a dwelling place for God. God said, no, that's going to be for the next king, which would be Solomon. But David began to find a location, and he also took up a, an offering to help construct the temple when the time came. But in reflection upon that offering and in his prayer to the Lord, he, he, he said these words. It's captured in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 14. He said, Oh God, who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and out of your own have we given you. When we give, when we tithe, and we give above and beyond, this is essentially what we're doing. We're giving back to what God has already provided to us, and it's already His. As we looked at two weeks ago, again, just the refresher that Jesus had much to say about giving. And in the Gospel of Mark, you start seeing that happen around chapter 10. But it's not just Jesus that had something to say. The entirety of Scripture has something to say about how we give and how we steward what God has given to us. We don't always like to hear that because it often reflects where our heart is. But we still need to hear that. Jesus, to kind of corrected our skewed view of money and treasure when in the Sermon on the Mount, he told us, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The two are linked together. But from Mark chapter 10 on, there are several moments where Jesus took the opportunity to teach his disciples the truth, reflecting stewardship of our resources. Friends, one of the things at the very beginning we need to remember is that God knows his creation. He knows everything about us. He knows that we are naturally bent to worship something. Not necessarily the worship of the right and true God in spirit and in truth, but to worship anything that we ascribe worth to. It could be our family. It could be our children. It could be cars, material things. It could be so many things. But particularly one this morning that we'll focus on is money. Money is one of those things that we have become very good at ascribing worth to. And it very may, well may be your little God this morning that you're worshiping. 
Paul had a warning for Timothy in the church at Ephesus in his first letter to Timothy. It's found in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says to Timothy, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Not money is the root of all sorts of evil, but the love of money, ascribing worth to it above all other things, worshiping money, giving it our affection, making it the sole purpose of our life, making it our, uh, all of our attention, focusing on that. That is where the source of evil comes from. When we make it our God, it is not a God who will die and save us. It is not a God who will save us from, uh, from the grave. It is not a God who will forgive our sins. It is a God who will stir up all kinds of sins because when you have some, you never have enough. And it leads us to do whatever we want and whatever we can to simply get more. But if you look back into the Gospel of Mark, all the way back to chapter 10, you begin to see how Jesus worked this into his teaching and into his ministries to set the, the heart right for his disciples. Look at Mark chapter 10. There a rich young man came up to him, concerned about his own eternity. And he wanted to know, and he asked Jesus, Sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, he called Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, Jesus goes down through a list of the commands, many commands, and this young man hadn't killed anybody, he hadn't murdered anybody, he's a, an honest man, all of these things that he met the criteria for. He'd followed so many of those commands that Jesus had listed out, he said, yeah, I, I've got those down. But Jesus knew the one thing of which he saved for the end and which he pointed out. He said, young man, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. It wasn't that he had money, it's that the money that he had was an idol for him. And we're not supposed to worship anything else, anyone else, any other thing before God. Idolatry is a sin and it's a sin that we all fall prey to. He couldn't do that. He left Jesus and he says he was saddened by this, by this news. Because God was his wealth. Mark chapter 11, as the gospel continues, Jesus enters Jerusalem. Upon entering Jerusalem, Jesus goes to the temple. There he found the money changers and folks selling animals for sacrifice inside the temple. Specifically, Mark mentions pigeons. There he corrected them by stating that his house was to be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. You see what was happening in the temple in the selling of all the animals that were missing the mark on the sacrifice. They were all totally missing the mark, the heart of the sacrificial system. And this den of robbers, they were making money off of those who didn't bring a sacrifice or left their good animals at home, those who would qualify for sacrifice to buy an inferior animal so it wouldn't cost them as much. 
There's lots, lots of mistakes happening, lots of sin happening. And Jesus's sole purpose there was to say, hey, this place is a place of prayer. It's a place for the nations. It's a place for the people to come and meet God. This is where his presence is. And you're abusing it and misusing it by turning it into a den of robbers. And then in Mark chapter 12, as the story continues, I always hope when I turn into Mark chapter 12 or the Gospel of Matthew that this passage is gone, but it's always there. And so I think we must follow it. And that's paying taxes to Caesar. Rats. I always wish that one was gone. You know, how much money we see? There we go. How much more could we have? Mm. Pay to Caesar. What is Caesar's? And then we come upon the end of chapter 12. Where we have the widow. That image that's on the coin, you know, that's what Jesus said, whose image is on there? It belongs to Caesar, give it to him. That's what he's chasing after. But you come to the widow and you see in the widow a totally different heart. In this closing of chapter 12, Mark gives us quite the distinction between three different groups of people and the context of 10, 11, and 12 building up to this moment helps us see the distinction of the three different groups that he saw in the temple. The first is the group of the scribes. The second is the rich folk. And then you've got the third, which is the widow. We're gonna take a look at all three of these for just a moment. So let's examine that distinction, if you will. There always should be a marked difference between God's people and those who are not God's people. Those who follow Jesus with all of their heart and those who do not. Those who love God above all else and those who only say they do. First, we see the scribes in verse 38. Jesus said, beware of the scribes. In other words, watch out for these guys. These dudes are bad news. Quite often, Jesus would offer a stinging rebuke against those who are religious authorities. Sometimes he called them hypocrites because they're acting one way in public for all to, for, uh, to, to be seen, and yet behind the scenes, in their heart rather, they're totally not on board. And yet we'll see Jesus save the compassionate moments for those who are down and out like the widow. When we think about the scribes, friends, there's nothing liberal about these guys. They are extremely conservative in their, the, in their theology, and in terms of their devotion to Scripture, they even, they're even so conservative, they go beyond Scripture and add to the Scripture more regulations so they would not even come close to touching or breaking the Scriptures. They had a number of problems, but the primary issue was their practice of what they were preaching. Rather than being marked by humility and generosity, they were marked by themselves. They were marked as the center of their own universe. Friends, there is a serious problem, and sometimes it's a silent danger when it comes to the sin of pride. Pride lurks around, looking, always looking for its next victim. And the surest way to fall prey to the predator of pride is to fail to pray. The scripture tells us that pride comes before the fall. Next week, we'll look at Romans chapter 1. And there in chapter 1, specifically verse 25, Paul writes, They, the world, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. This is a take uh, on, on, this is where pride leads you. It leads you down a path of destruction. 
It leads you down to exchanging the truth about God for a lie. It leads to the worship of self or other gods rather than the one true and living God. Pride tells us that we have earned a position of power. Pride tells us that we deserve to be recognized for our position of power. And these scribes, they were certainly puffed up in their religious customs and their ceremonial appearances. Jesus says they walked around in their long robes to be seen, to be noticed. That's a significant robe, right? You'd be walking through the temple hallways, you're walking around the temple, and you see these scribes come walking in. You're like, whoa, take notice. This guy here, look at him, look at that robe. Woo, that's somebody special. Must be a significant person. Must be some, ooh, let's follow him and let's see where he's going, like a little paparazzi all around him, right? It's kind of how we'd act if we'd see a superstar. I mean, the first time I went to a Spurs game and saw David Robinson, I mean, I was literally this close to him. Couldn't get his autograph because my buddy said, give me your pin, I'll get it before you. He didn't even make it to the floor. I was right there. I was just like, wow, he's huge, wow. That's who these guys were. They also like to be noticed in the marketplaces, like a celebrity in Hollywood, people pushing through to, to, to get their pics or their autographs. They wanted the best seats in the house, right? They wanted center court, floor level, so watch the Celtics beat the heat. 50-yard line seats, front row to the show. They walk into a feast, they walk into a banquet, and they want to they take the place of honor. There, they would notice the place of honor at the end of the table, the head of the table, rather. They'd take their place. And if not the head of the table, maybe the one on the right or the left, because those are prominent places as well. They wanted the best for themselves. They would pray long, extravagant, wordy prayers so that the people would hear them and think, whoa. When that man prays, I want to be close to him. He's really close to God. I didn't say they'd preach long, extravagant sermons. That's not what Jesus said, right? <laughs> but there, second to the last phrase, in the context of what comes next, Jesus says they devour widows' houses. They're not literally eating a house, right? You don't do that. That would be weird. But it is an observation about the widow giving all she had to the Lord, and yet here are these religious authorities taking for themselves all she had to give to the Lord. These guys, these scribes, they violate, certainly violate the great commandment, which is to love God more than themselves and more than anything else. With all of themselves, they love him and the second like it, they failed to love others. So we must take note of these guys and beware lest we fall into the same trap of pride because it's so easy to slip into that place. The second issue these guys had was one of greed. They devour the widow's houses. In the Jewish context, the widow was one of the weakest positions of society, Jewish and Roman society too. To lose a husband back then was, in the Jewish context, was a loss of security. It left her vulnerable to the approaches of those who have status. 
So it was an opportunity for these scribes and these Pharisees to come in and get money and to rob, to take what was not theirs. You know, the guys that have things, the folks who have things like to get more things because of greed. And they will go after more things from those who are in weak positions. And so Jesus offers a stern rebuke and correction and judgment in verse 40 when he says they will receive the greater condemnation. But now in verses 41 and following, Jesus sat down opposite the temple treasury. He sits down in a place where he can see those who are coming into the temple to give an offering. And he starts people watching. You ever do that? I love doing that. Wow, do I love doing that. You know, watching at airports or shopping malls if you still go. Or, hey, why not the people of Walmart? Um, You know, hey, just come watch my family. We offer lots of entertainment all the time. It's a never-ending show. But here, Jesus takes note of two different type of people. Two more. Other than the scribes, you've got the rich folks and the poor widow that caught his eye. Now, let it be known here... Don't read into the text that Jesus is downplaying or angry or upset or judging the gift of the rich man. He's not. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't say anything negative about it. Not at all. Okay. Scholars tell us that in the temple treasury or in that place, they would come. I believe it's in the court of women uh, just outside that they would come. And and in that place, there's 13 receptacles, much like a shofar, which is like a trumpet. And it had a large end. It was made of metal. It had a large, broad end, and it would shrink down into the metal box. And so they didn't give by text. They didn't give by ACH, or, uh, uh, or they didn't give by check. So and no paper money, right? So everything is by coin. And a coin hitting on the metal, you know what kind of noise it's going to make. The larger the offering, the larger the sound. So Mark says that Jesus noted many rich people put in large sums. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is doing, what he's going to do is to turn upside down the way we place value on certain things. Because certainly his disciples are sitting there with him watching and they're like, hey, John, did you see that? That was loud. Wow, lure those people. They must have all kinds of money, right? And, and Matthew's over there like, mm-hmm, I wonder if they pay taxes on that. Think of, and Peter's over there, how many fishing boats could I buy with that? And they're thinking, wow, look at that. And then, Just like maybe right there closest to him is this little obscure figure, this woman who is a widow, walking up amongst all the big change going in, all the clanging that's happening. You could barely make out, maybe probably wouldn't even hear her drop in her two little pennies, her two little copper coins. Y'all, they're tiny. They're not the size of our penny. They're much, much smaller. Really, in the grand scheme of things, they're insignificant. But Jesus took notice. Jesus took notice of what she did that day. When we look at the widow, as she comes, Jesus finds this moment to be a teachable moment for his disciples. And he says in verse 43, Truly I say to you, if you have your old King James with you, it's verily, verily. That's how you know it's important. Truly, truly. Amin Lego. This is a true statement. Listen, take note of what I am about to say. Beware of the scribes, but be aware of the widow. Truly, I say to you, this widow just put in more than all the others. 
say, what? Jesus, we couldn't even hear her offering hit the offering box. How is that even possible? That's the question. How can this widow's offering of two pennies be more than all of those noisemakers with their large offerings? The math doesn't compute, Jesus. Well, he's working on kingdom math. It's totally different. But the answer is fairly straightforward if you keep reading. Jesus says the rich gave what they never miss, while the widow gave what she couldn't afford. They all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. R.C. Sproul wrote about this story and called it the most famous donation in history. We've heard this one before. Many of us have. It also resembles what happens in Mark chapter 14, where there the woman breaks the jar of alabaster oil and anoints Jesus before his trial, crucifixion, and burial. And you've got Judas on the scene who knows in his own mind the value of money to sell out his Savior for 30 pieces of silver saying, what did you just do? Why did you do that? Don't you know we could have sold that jar of oil for 300 denarii and fed lots of poor people with it? He says, hey, dude, the hungry are always going to be with you. The poor are always going to be with you. What she has done is the best thing. She has done a beautiful thing to me. All the widow had to live on, she gave. Relate it to a story I heard this week. It's a story about the chicken and the pig. You find out where you are in this story. Let's see if you guys are as quick as the nine o'clock service. You've been awake a little bit longer, had more coffee, so you should be get it. You, you should be able to get it. The, the chicken says to the pig, hey, pig, why don't we go into business? The pig says, well, what kind of business? Chicken replied, the bacon and egg business. All right, some of y'all sleeping already. Well, that old pig says, not so fast, chicken. For you, that's a contribution. For me, that's a sacrifice. That is the challenge of courageous giving. For the, for the rich folks in, in this moment, it's a contribution. For the widow, it's a sacrifice. That's the challenge of courageous giving. They gave out of the wealth. She gave all she had to live on. And so I want to encourage you this morning to take the challenge of courageous giving. And I'll throw in there another one, the courageous living. Jesus does not separate belief from action. He never does. That which we believe, which we trust, we take action on. But that's the problem with the religious authorities. That's the problem with the scribes that he talks about in verse 38. Be aware of them because their belief doesn't determine their action. The two seem to be separated or compartmentalized, working opposite of each other. But when we follow Jesus, they're supposed to work together for the authentic and vibrant faith that we have in Christ cannot sit still. It is always active and it should be bearing fruit of godly action. Courageous giving and living happens when we trust God to continue to provide for all that we need. Not all that we want, but all that we need. This widow put the honor of the Lord above her own priorities. 
Here's what it looks like. And here's the challenge. One is that Jesus sees what we give. He sees, he knows. He owns it all. It's all his. And he sees and he knows what we give. Some give a lot because they have a lot. And we say, thank you. Praise God for your offering. Thank you for giving. Because you're giving, lives are being changed. Some give their all because they have little. And we say, praise God, thank you for giving. Lives are being changed because of your giving. But it is proportionate. You have to look at what's left over. Two pennies out of two pennies is a factor of one. A thousand pennies out of 10,000 pennies is a factor of one-tenth. Proportionate. And our giving and stewardship is always before the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel is looking to anoint the next king and he, he goes through all the sons of Jesse except one, little David, and God reminds him, Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The outward appearance, the clanging of the large offering. Wow, that's great, yes. Versus the widow whose heart was closest to the Lord giving all she had. The Lord knew. The Lord knew. Going back to 1 Chronicles chapter 29 that we read at the beginning. Who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have we given you. Friends, he knows what we have because he gave it. And the Lord knows the heart. And he knows the heart above everything else. He knows the heart that says little is much. When God is in it, he loves that heart that says little as much when God is in it. Jesus also knows why we give. He knows that sacrificial giving honors Christ, even if that amount is small. Why? Because it's an act of worship in spirit and in truth. That's what the father seeks. He doesn't seek zeros at the end of numbers. He seeks a heart that loves him and worships him in spirit and in truth. The amount is not large, but her sacrifice is great. Her sacrifice said, I trust the Lord. I love what Alistair Begg asked about this poor widow. When he asked this question, what would she learn in her emptiness? As friends, when we're empty, that's all the space the Lord needs to come and change our life and to provide. Courageous giving and living starts with that proper perspective, setting our hearts straight, asking the Lord to set our hearts straight. The first heart attitude is, God, all that I have belongs to you. All that I have belongs to God. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Friends, all that we have belongs to God. Even this old tent that we live in belongs to him. The second hard attitude is to say, God has entrusted me. He has entrusted some to me. God has entrusted some to me. Not all, but some. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. God has given you, entrusted to you, some part of his kingdom, 
some part of what he has, and you are called now to be a good steward of what God has entrusted to you, which leads us to the third heart attitude, which is to say, what God has given to me is given for a purpose. God has given to me, and what he has given to me is given for a purpose. The widow understood that. I think the folks in this story who were wealthy understood that. They were going to the temple giving out of what they had. The scribes, they didn't get that so much. They thought what was given was given for their purpose, not God's purpose. Courageous giving and courageous givers are generous. As we looked at two weeks ago, courageous givers are cheerful, hilariously giving, not out of compulsion, but because they acknowledge and they trust in the gift of grace through Jesus. Ultimately, this story, if we narrow it down, the story is not about a widow giving a couple of pennies and a bunch of wealthy people giving out of their wealth. I think Jesus is looking forward to something more. It's not a story of Robin, uh, like a Robin Hood where we're robbing from the rich, giving to the poor, making everything equal. That's not what the purpose was. But yet what we have is another moment when Jesus would point forward when he too would give all he had to his father and for you and me, sinners like us. Because ultimately, Jesus was all in for you. He gave everything he had for you. He gave his life so that you too would know the grace of God. He gave his life so that you too would know the sacrifices that were made that what you have in your possession is given to you by God so that you would be a good steward, a faithful steward, a gracious and kind steward of all that he has given to you. It really boils down to this. I've been reading a book entitled Absolute Surrender by a man by the name of Andrew Murray. It's an old work. It's worth your read. It's, it's, uh, my print is large and it's fairly thin, so you could probably get through it in about an hour. I love books like that but it's so deep I can't go through it fast. <laughs> the very beginning in chapter one, first page, it begins, Andrew Murray begins by telling a story out of the Old Testament from 1 Kings chapter 20, where Ben-Hadad, who is the king of Syria, was trying to work against Israel and overtake Israel. Eventually he would be defeated, but at the beginning of that story, there's a man by the name of Ahab who was also the king of Israel. Ben-Hadad had, had made some demands upon Israel. Ahab had given in to a certain extent. And it is what Ahab said in reply to Ben-Hadad that caught Murray's eye and that catches my eye. And I believe it's verse 4 of 1 Kings chapter 20 where Ahab replies, now listen to this, he says, As you say, my Lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. I don't know what the widow said that day as she put her offering in, but it might have sounded something like the words of Ahab. As you say, my Lord, O King, I am yours and all that I have. That 
my friends, is total surrender. The widow was surrendered. Jesus surrendered to the cross and to the burial. We are called to total and complete surrender of our lives and all that we are, that we would be a yes, Lord, people. That when he calls on us, we are ready and waiting. And we always say, yes, Lord. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord.